0: Welcome to Money Talks, a series of interviews with me, Liam Halligan, economics and business editor of GB News. In this episode, I talk to Tony Stein, co founder and CEO of Healthcare Management Solutions, which employs over 2,000 staff across more than 60 UK care homes. Having built one of Britain's biggest social care providers, Stein is a hugely experienced leader in his field. In this in depth interview, He discusses how the sector's grappling with inflation and staff shortages while reflecting on the challenges of the Covid pandemic, including what he calls the myth that the NHS and government was to blame for the spread of the virus across some of the UK's care homes. Tony, great to have you on Money Talks. You're in charge of 60-odd care homes. Tell us how the pandemic was across those care homes that you run.
1: It must have been a big challenge. It was a huge challenge. Um, We had an early start. Um, The uh, GP who came across from a skiing holiday and a a conference and was one of the first people to be considered a spreader of the virus um, went to one of our care homes. We were the first care home with a known contact with COVID back in February 2020. Um, There was virtually no guidance out at that time. Um, Public Health England and CQC hadn't really got going at that point. So we were pretty much making it up on the fly. But I have to say that, that early jolt for us really gave us a bit of a head start. So in the first wave, we had a remarkably low death rate in our care homes. Um, we learnt a lot very quickly. We learnt how to communicate very clearly with our staff and our relatives and our residents. And um, it stood us in really good stead. Um, the trickiest part though for the whole of i think for the whole sector and for us was that manage, managing that uh, issue of uh, transitioning staff backwards and forwards to home and back into the services and making sure they they weren't bringing the virus in and where we did have outbreaks that the staff didn't blame themselves there was an awful lot of that so there's a lot of emotion in the in in the whole of the pandemic for the staff And I think people forget that. So two years on now, what we are seeing is there's quite a lot of um, mental exhaustion, emotional exhaustion amongst the workforce. And we've lost an awful lot of people. And I think people are are missing that that, uh, at a fundamental level. We've got staffing issues in the care sector anyway. Mm. And the pandemic's really exacerbated that. So a lot of really good managers have left. Um, We've lost years and years of experience and and finding a way to replace that is is tricky. So that's where we are.
0: As a GB News uh, presenter, as a Telegraph columnist, I get lots and lots of emails. Um, My impression from my own family's experience, from people that correspond with me, about the care home sector during the pandemic is, is mixed. There's an awful lot of praise for individual care home staff, even for some care homes per se, but there's also quite a lot of anger particularly about trying to access loved ones during the pandemic. And you've lived and breathed this now for getting on for two years, Tony, and and we can talk about that. Before we talk about that very human frontline aspect of what you've been dealing with across the 65 care homes that you're responsible for, spool us back to that time when it became clear that what the NHS was doing was moving old people, elderly, vulnerable people out of the healthcare system and into care homes. And many of those people, it turned out, unfortunately already had COVID. How is it like, how is it dealing with that?
1: Oh, I'm so, so glad you asked me that question because this is one that's really taxed me over the last couple of years. Um, the, the myth that is going around is that somehow the NHS and the government were in some way culpable for deaths in care services as a result of discharging untested people into care homes. And I say it's a myth, Mm. and it's a myth because as a care home operator, I have a statutory obligation to refuse to take anybody into my care home who I believe I can't care for safely. Mm. That's my responsibility alone. You know, the government, they don't The NHS don't send ambulances around to care homes and just boot people out and say, here you go. This is not how it works. So we took a view right at the beginning that if the country was to survive the pandemic, we all had to work together. Our staff are trained in the management of um, uh, contagious disease. Um, And we we had to decide very quickly which care homes we felt were capable of managing that process, were capable of isolating people that came into our home safely until we knew they were um, not COVID positive. And some homes we felt could do that and some homes we felt couldn't for a variety of reasons, maybe the layout of the home, maybe the dependency of the uh, residents in the home. And we had a very, very, as I say, very low death rate during that initial first outbreak. I think it's unfair for operators to point the finger anywhere at themselves other than themselves. If they took people into their homes and they didn't know whether they were positive or not, but they couldn't safely manage that, they shouldn't have taken them. So really, it's not an issue of government. This is not an issue of NHS uh, policy and process. It's an issue of you know, how did the operators manage their care homes at that time?
0: So that's very interesting. You know, few people in the country as as experienced as you in, in this sector. You are literally an industry leader. Healthcare Management Solutions is a major name and you're a major name in this sector. And you're saying it wasn't the NHS's fault. It was the no. fault of individual care home operators not being able to handle the situation when they had basically accepted that they could handle it
1: by allowing the people into their care homes in the first place they accepted them you know it's no if you take somebody into your home you're effectively putting your hand up and saying i can safely safely look after this individual if they felt that there was a risk that maybe they were covid positive but they couldn't be certain that they could isolate them properly they couldn't manage the the barrier nursing they couldn't they couldn't handle the, um, the infection control within the environment that they had, they should have just said no. And that was perfectly their right to do that. So, no, I don't, I don't think that's... I think that's a myth and I think that's something that we should get out of our heads. Um, I think you mentioned the visiting as well and, and mm. the way that other operators have handled that through the pandemic. This is, this is another issue that I think people forget that as a highly regulated business we have to follow guidance. We have no option. If we don't follow guidance, we're not covered by our insurers. You know, we're also at risk of prosecution. So whatever the guidance says, we have to do it. We can't just make a decision and say, no, great, we like our visitors and our, res- our residents need those people, so let's let them in. Do you think
0: there were instances, Tony, where the guidance you and your staff were, were rightly following was a little bit harsh, a little bit inhumane in circumstances, not being able to hold the hand of loved ones as they died, yeah. even when the spouses had been you know, triple checked and had a lot less chance of having COVID with all respect than the care home staff.
1: I think with hindsight, without a doubt, but hindsight's a wonderful thing and you have to put this into context I think at the time people were incredibly worried when you're when you're running a home you've got potentially 60 80 100 residents in that home the idea of allowing somebody in who and you've got to remember as well you say been triple checked at the beginning for the first what six seven eight months testing wasn't ubiquitous, you know, the way it is now. We didn't have access to that. You know, PPE for some providers was scarce. I mean, we never ran out, thank goodness, but it, it wasn't as if it was, you know, really easy to get hold of. And, and I also think that our first thought was, you know, this is, this is a terrible imposition on this individual and their family, but if 60 people die as a result of this, you know, of saying it would be It nice. is an
0: environment, in all fairness to you, with people we know to be extremely vulnerable. Obviously, by definition, elderly, often, unfortunately, with uh, medical conditions and uh, I- immunity issues, of, of of course. Let me put this to you, Tony. There's a lot of debate, or there's a lot of debate under the surface about our care sector, social care more generally. The government is going to face a lot of criticism for this national insurance rise in April, which it says is it's partly about the NHS backlog, it's partly also about trying to tackle social care. Do you think it's true to say this is the first government in a long time that's prepared to actually acknowledge there's a problem and do something about it? Or do you still think we're miles away? from getting our arms around the issue of reforming our social care system wow. in a country that is you know, rapidly getting older?
1: Yeah. Well, wow. there have been successive papers out from government after government after government of both stripes, I would say all stripes, but there's only really two, <laughs> over the years. And we've never really made much progress. I think politically it was always unpalatable The solution always involved raising taxes and nobody ever wanted to do it. So when the government announced the increase in national insurance, I was doing somersaults, I'll be honest with you. Um, We have an ageing population. The NHS founded back in the 40s. God, I mean, mission creep doesn't enter into it. You know, what it does today is not what it did and what it set out to do. It does so much more and it's grown large and it's grown overweight and bloated and inefficient, um, so there's a huge expense, expense there. Um, but we have an ageing population that needs funding properly through, um, through the sort of um, difficulties of managing this, this, this body of people that are growing older with long, and lo- living longer with, with conditions that need uh, attention and care. So, so we need to spend more money on it. And I was overjoyed when the government said they were going to do it. But throwing money at this problem is part of the answer. But doing it in a thoughtful way that actually has the outcomes that we really want is way more challenging. Baroness um, uh, Cavendish has just released a report.
0: Camilla Cavendish, used to work at the Downstreet Policy Unit for David Cameron.
1: Yep. Um, it's a phenomenal report, well worth reading, really interesting stuff. A lot of it is, it comes under the heading of Statements of the Bloody Obvious, for anybody who's worked in the care industry for a long time, but there's some really thoughtful stuff going on in there. My hope is that we combine the extra cash that we're raising, it's 11 billion or whatever it is a year, and we use that to to put into place some of the things that she's recommending. One of the key things is combining budgets Because over over, health, NHS and and social care, because at the moment what you find is that local authorities don't want to assume the responsibility of paying for people's care. You know, they want to keep that with the NHS as long as possible because they're running out of cash. They don't have the money. Some areas of the country, some local authorities are really desperately hard up. Um, we've seen that in the past. I think it was in Northamptonshire that went to special measures. You know, and there will be others that will go the same way, and particularly with inflation flying in as it is this year. You know, so what we need to do is we need to make sure that, people's, that the decisions around people's care are made based on what's good for those individuals first and foremost, but also what's economically the right thing to do for the country. So leaving somebody languishing in a very expensive acute hospital bed for as long as possible, because the local authority Bedlockers. doesn't... us. Exactly. The local authority doesn't want to take that responsibility. Madness. It's, it's madness. It's madness. It, from UK PLC perspective, yeah. it's nonsense. So we've got to combine those budgets. We can keep decision-making local, mm. but we need to centralise that funding. So that's the first and foremost issue. Um, but again, so many other things that need to be addressed, but Cavendish's report is really, really interesting.
0: Final question, Tony. Staff... There's a lot of uh, talk that um, there's a shortage of staff in care homes. There's a lot of uh, anecdotal evidence that the shortage has got worse since uh, Brexit and the end of freedom of movement. How is the situation across your 65 care homes, and what can we do to encourage more people
1: into the sector? It's challenging. Really challenging. Uh, that's the first thing to say. Uh, no question about it. Uh, very, very hard to recruit. We've had to um, stop admissions in some of our homes because we can't um, recruit the staff to, to look after the people. Um, and that's something that I'm hearing from many of my uh, peers across the across the sector. Um, in fact, that's the only thing in the uh, Cavendish report that I disagree with because she says uh, she thinks that that problem's going away now, but absolutely not. Recruitment's still a major issue. Um, one of the other things, though, is, is the long-term solution is easy. The long-term solution is, is to pay a wage to care workers that's com- commensurate with the responsibility that comes with that job. It's a very responsible job. It's actually a very difficult job. I've, I've, I've done the job of a carer, and it is remarkably hard, and it's not a minimum-wage job by any stretch. So that's the first thing. So we've got to, we've got to change the view of, of that as a career, but that's a long-term issue. Mm. The short-term issue is, and the only lever you can pull, is to offer people a wage that allows them t- to go into care because there's a lot of people who would love to be in the care industry. They would love to, act, to 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 take a job as a carer, but can't afford to because mm. it just doesn't pay enough. So if we can if we can crack that one in the short term, that's the way to do it. People talk about training as if this is another panacea. It absolutely not. It's like having an army. You can't have everybody as a colonel. We need some carers at at the sort of base level to carry out care work. We also need to give people a way of progressing through the system. But but you know we 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 need people at all all levels within the industry. So I think. Um, Trying to change public perception, giving people a decent uh, wage that's commensurate with their training and their experience. That's really important. And, And trying to give some parity between social care workers and NHS care workers. And there is no parity mm. at the moment. You know, if you work for the NHS, and this is why I talk you about... You get a lot more money. You, yeah. You benefits, often get a pension and all the rest of it. Sick pay, you know, the, all the good stuff that we can't afford to pay. I mean, a, a good ex- I, when I talk about the social... By the way, when I talk about social care, there are... And certainly in the residential care side of it, not talking about domiciliary care particularly, but if you look at residential care, it's a two-tier market. There are people who pay for their own care, and they receive exceptionally good care in very good assets, and, you know, they can choose where they want to go. And then you get socially funded care. And the socially funded care is a real challenge at the moment. We're losing beds at a huge rate, and that's going to accelerate this year. There are places in the country where you cannot get beds, particularly for nursing, because the operators can't run the homes for what they're getting paid by the local authorities. You know, the, the, you know I've, I've, we've been running homes... We're still getting paid £600 a week for, you know, 24-7 care. Um, given the, given the um, requirements that are now placed upon us by the various stakeholders in terms of the quality of care that we deliver, which should be good, it should always be good, and we should always be pushing for better, but given all those requirements and the challenges that we're facing with inflation and the challenges that we're facing with staffing and all the other stuff, you know, £600 a week doesn't cut 24-7 care. You know, if you go to a holiday inn, you know, for clean sheets in a room, literally that's all you will get It's £100 a night. So that's £700 a week. So add in three squares, you know, all your laundry, cleaning, entertainment. You know, it's not going to happen, is it?
0: Tony yeah. Stein, fascinating. CEO of Healthcare Management Solutions. Thanks for talking to me. Pleasure. Thanks a lot for listening to Money Talks with me, Liam Halligan. Economics and Business Editor of GB News. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you're listening. Do subscribe to this podcast and also check out my daily television show, On The Money, at 1pm Monday to Friday on GB News or via the GB News app. GB News, Britain's news channel.